So this evening, I'm going to be preaching uh, from Revelation 5. Revelation 5, a very well-known chapter. Last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. I'll read the text, I'll pray briefly, and then we'll, we'll dive into the word. This is the word of God. Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and glory and honour and glory and might for ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, as we come to you this evening, uh, we pray that you would bless us, even fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might even understand your word and see Christ, him crucified and risen before us. I pray that you would encourage the saints here this evening. I pray that you would save any here who are lost. And I pray that you would get glory for yourself. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, many years ago, um, I was a professional footballer. And like anyone who's interested in sport, I used to read the newspapers back to front. I turned straight to the back page to see the sports headlines, okay? And now and again, then I turned to, to the front. But I think if I was to write the, the headlines in a newspaper, front page headlines, for the last maybe eight, nine months, um, they might read like this. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II is dead. The Russia-Ukraine war rages on. We are all recovering from a pandemic. Inflation is rocketing. The economy is rocking. 
We're living in uncertain times. Freedom of speech is being challenged. Freedom of religion even being curtailed. There'll be some of the headlines that I might write. And particularly then speaking to Christians, we are living in an increasingly anti-Christian world. If you look at something, the history of Christian persecution and martyrdom, Christians were persecuted and martyred not so much for being Christian, though of course we know that is the case underneath, but actually for being enemies of the state, for being enemies of the state, for being illegal in the eyes of the state, political exiles. And that's what the Apostle John the author of Revelation was. He was a political exile on the island of Patmos. This is where he wrote Revelation. A tiny island, imprisoned, he wasn't allowed off. And the central message of Revelation given to John is this. Jesus wins, worship him. Jesus wins, worship him. You want to understand the book of Revelation, very difficult book to understand. But if you want a strap line through the book, it is Jesus wins, worship him. If you're going to persevere in a world of suffering and opposition to God's people, you need to know that Jesus wins in the end. And to know that Jesus wins in the end, you need to see that Jesus reigns now. He's reigning now. And so John, who is called the seer, because he sees this revelation given to him by God, this John suffering in exile, this political prisoner for Jesus Christ, presents here a vision, a a glimpse into heaven, as it were. So if you're going to be a, a Christian who perseveres, who overcomes, as the Apostle Paul says, who is more than a conqueror, You've got to look at the world through a heavenly lens. God basically says to John, come up here. Come up here and see things from my perspective. Then go live your life with a different perspective. And so with political strife all around, with an oppressive state in view, with moral and spiritual decline everywhere and persecution on the horizon, we today need to see history and all that's going on around us from a heavenly perspective. Not from ourselves outwards, but from heaven downwards. So John has a glimpse into heaven. And he records the most important things we need to see. The most important things we need to see. Yesterday, today and forever. The world is bombarding us all with things to see. With information. Internet, uh, social media stuff, television, magazines, things to see, things to see. And John gives us a vision of the most important things we need to see. And they are these. A throne, a scroll, a lion and a lamb. Four things. A throne, a scroll, a lion and a lamb. First of all, a throne. Look at the text. At the beginning, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. You've got to think of the book of Revelation as a a mosaic picture. And there are these stories and, uh, and images swirling around and they're not always in order of time. 
and it can be hard to interpret. But if you keep chapters four and five central in your view, everything else makes sense. Because the central view of chapters four and five is a throne. It's a throne. Everything is going badly. John's in exile. The state is a totalitarian Roman regime. Churches are struggling, but there's a throne. And it means this, friends. Sovereignty resides in heaven, not on earth. That's right, isn't it? It resides in heaven, not on earth. Up there is where the real government is. Up there is where the government of the world and the universe is located, not on earth. So you need to lift up your eyes to heaven and see a throne. And you've got to notice also that this throne is occupied. It's an occupied throne. It's occupied by God, by him who is seated on the throne. He's God the Father. In in chapter 4, you you only need to look back to chapter 4. We see in verse 3 that there is a rainbow around the throne. And you'll remember very easily, even back to Sunday school, that a rainbow is a sign of the covenant promise of God that he made with Noah to preserve the earth. And also in chapter 4, you see there is a storm emanating from the throne and there's this lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And that should remind us of when Moses met the Lord at Mount Sinai and was given the law, the Ten Commandments. And this is important, you see, because the one who occupies the throne is the covenant-keeping, law-giving God of Israel. He is Yahweh. He's the almighty God who revealed himself to Moses from the burning bush as I am who I am. And so the heavenly beings in chapter 4, verse 8, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And again, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. This is the one who's on the throne. And you see, God hasn't been elected and God cannot be dethroned. God has always been and will always be in power. He has not lost control and he has not let the universe continue unsupervised. We could say this, that in the year that Queen Elizabeth II died, we can see God on the throne. Still, he is on the throne and always will be. When our politics and our finances, when our health and our freedoms even on earth look out of control, we need to look up to heaven and to the throne of God. It's not that other things around us don't matter, but they don't matter decisively. They don't matter ultimately. It really doesn't matter in the long term who becomes president of the US or prime minister of Canada or prime minister of the UK or North Korea. It doesn't matter in the end. God is on the throne, he's seated, he's absolutely calm, he's in absolutely sovereign control, and he rules and reigns with absolute authority. All things are subordinate to him, and he's in control of all rulers, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it didn't come more oppressive than the Roman rule in John's day, and in the early church. Some of us in here might get all head up about the sky falling in 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 the west. But God wants us to be able to endure and persevere and not lose heart or compromise our faith. Whatever rule is over us 
on earth. And so as Christians, we seek to be submissive to the authorities over us, where it is we're not called to sin, knowing that God is over all authorities. We need to see who's really in charge. That's the first most important thing to see, a throne. And now look at the scene. It's as if the camera in this vision zooms in. It's this big, big vision of this throne and then zooms in onto something small but significant. Something is in the right hand of the one who occupies the throne. Something else we need to see. And it's a scroll. The second thing we need to see. The one who occupies the throne, you see, has purposes. There is purpose at the heart of history because there is one with a purpose and plan for history. You see, the scroll contains the account of God's plans for human destiny and the destiny of all things. For salvation and judgment and restoration. And if you look at the text, it it tells us that the scroll has writing on the inside and the outside. The picture here is almost of a a title deed of ownership or a, a last will. And testament. That's the way it would have been written in the ancient world. This is God's final word, if you like. All that has happened in the past and all his plans and purposes for the future. And it's complete. Writing covers every space, inside and outside. And it's sealed with seven seals. In other words, there are no omissions in God's purposes and plans, friends. Nothing's missing. And that's hugely important to see in the dark days, isn't it? When you are suffering, when you're going through something difficult. What are you suffering here this evening? I know you'll all be suffering something, various trials. It's good for you to know that your trials are actually folded into God's plans, ordained if you like, and they connect somehow to salvation and judgment and restoration. It's all contained in the scroll. scroll. God's not caught unaware. Sometimes we can't fathom, can we, why things are like they are, why we suffer in the way that we do, why someone dies in our family at a young age. Why we experience the difficulties that we do. But remember the sufferings of Job. Job didn't see everything that was going on. He, he couldn't work out why he was suffering so. There are God's secret providences that we're not able to understand. We can't compromise, comprehend the mind of God who has woven all things together perfectly. We have his revealed will in the scripture. But there is a secret will, and the secret things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy tells us. And that's why the scroll is sealed and can't be broken. No one is able. No one is able to do it. Verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. No one anywhere able to open this scroll no heir to the will if you like no one who can open it and make sense of God's plans and bring them to their purpose and so what happens is this John begins to weep and he says he weeps loudly he sobs as if he's groaning in pain such is this reality of the woe he sees maybe you've had dreams sometimes you know those those dreams they've been so powerful that you literally wake up sobbing 
You can still feel the emotion of that dream, even after you are awake. So so it's like that here. Such is the intense reality for, for John as he's given this glimpse into ultimate reality. What is really true. And he sees that a world is doomed because no one can open the scroll. And so he weeps. And friends, you you know this yourself, don't you? You know it when you weep at the hopeless state of the world. Your friends, your loved ones who are heading to hell under judgment of God for their sins. And they maintain, God will forgive me because I am a good person. And you weep when no matter how many times you tell them that no one is good before God and everyone needs a saviour. They still maintain their cause. On social media, a little while ago, I saw an interchange between a Christian and an angry man who was very anti-God. And this man, this angry man says, you watch. He says, when I meet God, if there is one, I will give him a piece of my mind. And you weep at the folly. And you weep for the millions who are going to hell because of unrepentant sin. Maybe you personally know the anguish yourself of crying out to God. Why, oh Lord, why these sufferings in my life? It's too much to bear. Why the oppression that I'm feeling in the workplace or at school? And why do the wicked seem to get away with it? When babies are being murdered by the millions in the womb. When the family is being destroyed. When eight-year-old children are told they can become a member of the opposite sex and given drugs to help them on their way. When the government is taking away even your parental power and maybe Christians are even being outlawed for preaching the Bible and Christians start losing jobs and pastors are even put in prison. You weep. Don't you weep? You see, Satan is a dragon. He's the ancient serpent of Genesis 3 who hates God and hates God's people. And he employs demons and unbelievers and they seem to be getting their way as lawlessness increases in the land. People are running around all over the place trying to make sense of the world and and setting up their own ideologies and their own worldviews, which only lead to what? To weeping, to hopelessness. Talk about mental health. We talk about the rates of depression going up and up and suicide. It's weeping. It's hopelessness. So there's only one thing that will stop the weeping on earth. And that is to see the one who is worthy to open the scroll in heaven. And then bring about the execution of God's plans. There's no answer to the angel's challenge to find someone worthy to open the scroll, you see, because the creation is utterly incapable of deciding and determining its own course of history. Only God can unfold God's plan. And so an elder here, we see, puts his hand, as it were, on John's shoulder and firmly says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And as you look at that, it's the kind of way that an elder should be in the church, really, isn't it? He comes alongside that person in distress, that one who is weeping, that one who can't understand what God's doing in their life. And and he puts his hand on the shoulder and says, don't weep anymore. Look, a lion. And it's the way we all need to be with one another, isn't it? 
in our trials and in our suffering, as we counsel one another, hand on the shoulder, don't weep anymore, look, a lion. And look who the lion is. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that's the messianic title of Jesus Christ. He comes from Genesis and Isaiah and Hosea. It prophesies that a king would come from the line of Judah. And then the other title, the, the root of David, comes from Isaiah 11. And, and it illustrates that the true king will be a descendant of King David. And so the lion then becomes this fitting image of the Lord Jesus. For the power of his strength, for his courage, and for the fact that the lion is the king of beasts. He is the one worthy to open the scroll. He is the one worthy to execute God's plan and make sense of all things. This is what John saw. This is most important for us to see. The lion king, Jesus. And so we can say then, finally, there's a champion. Finally, we've got one who can defeat sin, the devil, and all the enemies of God's people. All is well. We got a king. So we see, number one, a throne. God's in control. We see, number two, a scroll. He's got rock-solid plans and purposes. And human history is going somewhere. And we see, number three, a lion. We've got a king. And he is worthy and he is powerful to act out these purposes. Justice will be done. We will be shown mercy. And God will bring peace to us. And let's go forth now and let's conquer the world. But wait, there's one more thing, one more important thing we need to see. Because as John looks more closely and as the camera penetrates more deeply into this vision, he sees something else. He sees a lamb. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out on all the earth. The Greek actually says, little lamb. He is a little lamb. He's a little lamb who is standing, so he's alive. And yet he has the marks of a lamb who was slaughtered. And so he has risen from the dead. And the point is this. God's way to victory is through sacrifice and apparent defeat. God wins through death. God shows power through apparent weakness. And don't we know that as Christians? How often do you feel weak? It's not exactly that all of us in here are a great intimidating looking army, are we? We're weak. And yet that's the way God likes it because in jars of clay, he shows his glory. When we are weak... We're actually strong because his power is made perfect in our weakness. If we were all capable, if we're all almighty and strong, how would God get the glory? But when we're weak, he acts in us and through us for his glory. And then we get the joy. We get the help. Jesus is the sacrifice for sinners. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The mighty lion is a lamb who is slain. He's the lion king who devours Satan's sin and death, but who does it by dying as a lamb to the slaughter. Because it is in the death blow that he beats the devil and crushes the serpent's head. And it's in the death blow that he frees those who are in Satan's grip. 
by forgiving their sins and giving eternal life. What does Isaiah tell us about Jesus the Lamb? In Isaiah 53, very famous passage. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just read a few verses. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus was punished in our place, brothers and sisters. This is at the heart of the gospel. He was slaughtered to bring us life. And he went willingly. He went willingly. This is the power of the Lamb. Oh, and he has perfect, perfect power. You see in verse 6, seven horns in Revelation numbers are, are symbolic. And seven is perfection. So we see perfect power. And we see perfect knowledge. Seven eyes. He is omnipotent and he is omniscient. He alone then is worthy to take the scroll, and he does. And you can imagine, can't you, the drama and the thrill of this scene unfolding before John's eyes. The lamb boldly steps forward, complete composure, complete confidence. And he strides towards his father's throne. The lamb who is the son of God, with whom the father is well pleased. The rightful heir. And you can imagine the father is looking at the son and he's beaming with joy. And the son is looking at the father with perfect love. And he takes the scroll from the right hand of his father. And heaven watches. And then heaven worships. The four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fall down. And then singing erupts. And you know what's central in the praise? It's the worthiness of the lamb. Why? Because of the redemptive work on the cross. Because he was slain, not just for one person, but for people from every people group in the world. Look at it there. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And what's the reason? For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. A lot of talk, hasn't there been over the last couple of years about race and racism and Racial reconciliation and all of these things. But you've got a picture here of true reconciliation. Of people from all ethnicities, one human race, united in Christ, worshipping together. They sing. It's an interesting thing to note that in chapter 4, the elders and the angels say things about God. They say, holy, holy, holy. They say, worthy are you. But when Jesus comes, when the lamb steps forward and the objects of redemption are won and you see that Jesus wins and you worship him, you've got to sing. You've got to sing. They sing a new song. And so, brothers and sisters, we've got to sing. It's the overflow of the praise of our hearts. I mean, we were singing a difficult song before I got up here, but it was a song with great words. And if sung with a, 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 a humble heart, it's everything. And it's a, here's a great pastoral tip. When you are in trials, when you are in suffering, sing. Sing praise to God. It's a great tonic. It's a great tonic because we're meant to sing. And we sing because he loved us so. What kind of love is this? That we should be called children of God. What kind of love? 
So in the midst of your trials, sing. Sing in the good days, sing in the bad days and every day in between. And then you see as this chapter begins to end and as we move to a close in this message today, is as if it's almost more than John can bear and yet it begins to crescendo even more. So the worship of Jesus resounds in circles and moves outwards from the four living creatures and the 24 elders to suddenly tens of thousands and thousands of angels and then to every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And now you see the whole of the created order is worshipping inanimate objects, animals, birds, fish, elders, angels, the redeemed, and they all sing, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb. They're all giving praise to God. It's like the psalmist said at the end of the Psalms, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord, because that is the purpose of creation, to praise and worship God. These are the most important things we need to see, friends. A throne, a scroll, a lion, a lamb. All on the basis that Jesus wins. And so we worship him. And when we see these things, when we see these most important things, when we see gospel truths and keep them central in our focus, we know a couple of more things. We know, firstly, that Jesus gives history its meaning. There are two dates that matter. When Jesus came, that's why our whole calendar is BC and AD. And the second date is when he returns. So history revolves uh, around that and is resolved then by the life, death and resurrection and return of Christ. We tend to see history off to the side and, uh, and Jesus and church history as something separate. But all of history is centred around Jesus and that means that the church is central in God's purposes for all of history. Have you ever thought of that? You, little you, little me, being central in God's purposes for history? So get ready for his return. Don't compromise with a a, a pagan world. Don't lose your first love in Jesus. Don't tolerate sin in your life and be lukewarm. Worship the lamb and and get yourself ready like a, a bride gets herself ready for her wedding day. Because the bridegroom's coming. And there's a marriage supper of the lamb that Revelation speaks about. That's the first thing that we know when we see these most important things. And the second thing is this. Until he comes again, the church is playing its part in bringing about his return. What's Jesus continually doing? He's building his church. He's building his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. In difficult days, we can tend to get our eyes off of that. Jesus is building his church in every day. And he's using his church to do that. And the church does it by preaching the gospel and by praying. By preaching and praying. Preach the gospel. Jesus will build his church. Jesus can't be stopped. But the gospel's got to be preached for people to be saved. And pray, church. Pray. The prayers of the saints are key to bringing about God's purposes. It's so overlooked. Prayer is, uh, if you like, the human power centre on earth. And there it is, even in verse 8. Look at it. Verse 8. The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Every prayer made by every Christian, every Christian in here, in earnest, is bottled up and released 
in heaven and folded into God's plans and purposes to bring about the end and the new creation. So prayer meetings are power meetings. Prayer meetings are power meetings. I remember all those years ago when there was just a few of us in here on a Wednesday praying and praying for a a new pastor to come along even. And this little church suffered long and suffered hard, but prayed earnestly. I haven't heard people, I often bring up the prayers of of the old saints here when I'm preaching around. I say, I haven't heard people pray like that. I haven't heard people pray like that. And they prayed and they prayed and then Chola came. And what an answer to prayer that was. And what a blessing. The ministry of, of Chola has been here. And a blessing that Eunice has been in the church. And we've seen numbers grow. And we've seen holiness increase. Christians don't win by violent crusades. By taking to the street with the guns. Christians win on their knees. In prayer. And with the gospel on our lips. As we proclaim the truth of Christ. And suffer along. The way the church must preach and the church must pray, all in the light of Jesus giving history its meaning, all in the light of four things that we need to see. There are two places where Jesus is exalted in heaven and in the hearts of saints, in the hearts of believers. So we proclaim him and we pray for his name to be hallowed in the, all the earth until one day, at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. Willingly or unwillingly, they will bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a certainty. John is the seer and he's given a glimpse of heaven. And so friends, when you get a glimpse of heaven, and when you see the most important things, a scroll, a a throne, a scroll, a lion, a lamb, you cease to be a spectator and you want to be a participator. Yeah? And you've had those moments, maybe, when the word is preached, um, when there's a particular power and you find yourself in unison saying amen to all these truths and singing praise to the Lamb. And it's as if heaven comes down and fills your soul. And for a moment, it can seem like you're only a breath away from Revelation 5. Only a step away from what's going on up there and you yearn for it and you want more of it and that's why we preach the gospel we pray for revival and we look forward to that day even then death holds no fear because it's just one step away from Revelation 5 and what happens then when you get that glimpse of heaven when you've seen the king and when you know the king reigns and when you know he returns You know the outcome is secure and you come back down to earth with different eyes and you can never be the same again. And so you persevere and you praise. And maybe then people come into this place, into this church here, and they see you worship. And they even say with the Apostle Paul that that they might just fall on their knees and worship him as they declare God is really among you. What a thought that is, that as you here today sing and praise and hear the word preached that that someone might come not a believer and they might sense God is really among you and then another soul is one and the saints march on and the saviour builds his church until the lamb gets the full reward for his sufferings let's pray
So, Father, thank you for the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, these most important things that we must see. I pray that you would do by the power of your Holy Spirit more than we can even imagine this evening, that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us a greater vision of who you are in all of your grace uh, towards us, that Jesus Christ would build his church, that the gates of hell will not prevail, that we would be a preaching and praying people and that Jesus truly would get the true reward for all of his sufferings. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.